Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer podcast. And with me today, as, as always, is Phil Grant, the author of the Almost Daily Grants, Daily, virtually, Market Bulletin, the great Evan Lorenz, Deputy Editor of Grants, and at the controls, Eric Whitehead, and I am Jim Grant. Today's episode is sponsored by uh, Casper, which makes mattresses and e-financial careers. Welcome aboard e-financial careers. Now, we begin with, with a serving of humble pie. In the October 6th issue of Grants, we produced a long, long piece on Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund. And the story came in two parts. First was a critique, Bridgewater's eccentric culture, secretive ways, an investing MO, and C-suite turmoil, and the distraction of the principal, and other such things. And the second part, the second part for which I'm about to apologize, was an attack on the firm's compliance and regulatory practices. So the first part stands, only a dozen people at the top of this 1,500-person firm that to make decisions. Anyway, I'm not going to repeat that. What I am here to do is to apologize and try to make amends for the latter part, which got all the attention or much of the attention. And this is the part in which we're wrong. We are wrong to suggest that there is a nefarious relationship between Bridgewater and its auditor and wrong to suggest that Bridgewater's former employees who are kind of seconded to the Bank of New York Mellon as an outsourcing gig were serving two masters, both the bank and Bridgewater, and wrong to cast in the light of suspicion Bridgewater's disclosures on its prime brokerage relationships. So Bridgewater, Ray Dalio, and especially the nice lady who runs the compliance department, Grant's interest rate observer, begs your forgiveness. We regret the errors. So, Evan, what has the day brought by way of revelation into this financial age of ours? Well, I, in fact, we have, we have the two of us, in fact, the three of us are equipped with a list of headlines, and we can read some of them antiphonally as we do in church. You go ahead, you start a couple. Yeah, my, my favorite. Psalms. My favorite is E-Trade does this quarterly survey where they ask retail investors, what do you expect the market to do this quarter? And 24% of those retail investors expect the market to rise 10% or more in the fourth quarter. Not not the full year, but just in the three months that end December 31st. Okay, you know why they're, you know why they're rookies? Hmm. Because they got an opinion. Yeah. 10% is really not that much if you think about it. No, no. After tax. Bitcoin does that like every five minutes. Yeah. Okay. So what's the next one? What you got? You got nothing. The first one is, is very unimpressive. Evan. What, what you got for the second one? Well, as the market makes new highs almost every uh, day, apparently buy the dip uh, appearing in mainstream news stories and press releases are at their highest level since 2002, a time when there actually were dips to buy. That comes through a Bloomberg report. Actually, that is pretty impressive. Is there a third? Sure. I think this is pretty amazing. So BlackRock and Vanguard together, if you just sum up the assets that they manage at the end of the third quarter, it's 10 10.7 trillion dollars. And just to put that in perspective, 7. Point, what? 10.7 trillion. 10.7 billion is a lot of money. Well, not billion, trillion. Oh. And that's just shy of uh, China's GDP last year. Wait, wait. Yeah, except the 10 point something trillion in the hands of these money managers is probably a real sum of money, right? One would hope so. As opposed to? China, which always grows. 8%. Oh, by the way, did you see over the weekend, there was a story in the Times under the heading of stories that actually didn't surprise us. Uh, China's uh, scientific community is want to fake peer-reviewed scientific research. I'm shocked. Okay, okay. So anyway, I interrupted you, I think, in item number three. Yeah. So you're 10 point trillion. Any investor who's trying to Diversify has not done so uh, so well. So in the 12 months ending June 30th, the S&P 500 was up 18% year over year. But if you look at college endowments, which, you know, in, in, in addition to investing in stocks, they put money in bonds, real estate, private equity, um, what, what have you. They didn't do as well. Harvard and Yale, in fact, posted gains of 8.1% and 11.3%. So they were up just uh, about half as much as the market as a whole. You know, we never hear about the Big Ten, right? Yeah. So, so it's always like uh, Harvard and Yale, which is, I think they're pretty good schools. What did Ohio State do in that yeah, period? Or Rutgers, who is frequently, uh, you know, 
you know, the sort of bring up the rear in football, but perhaps uh, in their endowment it might be a different story. It might just be. I think there's. Uh, I think we need to get to the bottom of this one, Evan. Okay, proceed. And uh, going back to BlackRock and, BlackRock and Vanguard, the two managers together took in an average of three billion dollars a day every day the market was open in the first nine months of the year. Oh yeah. Well, this is you know, Jack Bogle, the uh, the progenitor of indexation, one of the greats of the investment business. Jack was at our conference. I don't know, uh, not so long ago. And um, what he said was, uh, in the day, Vanguard would take in, I don't know, take in a, a million or two or three or even eight or nine million dollars in a given day. And that would be very impressive. And when it took in a lot more than that, he would draw the troops together. He calls them the crew, the crew of Vanguard. And he would give them a lecture about, about hubris and about getting, as he puts it, too big for your britches. And then he says to the Grant's crowd, I think this is the spring, recently this spring, he says, and now we take in one billion dollars a day. And it sounded as if it freaked even Jack Bogle out, this sum of money. So, uh, Evan, so the fiduciary rule, well, this is a good one. Yeah, so uh, it went in part live on June 30th. There's still parts of it that have yet to be implemented, but it's one of those things that's pushing more and more investors into uh, ETFs and passive products. It's not that um, Bogle or uh, Larry Fink actually need any help, but it seems like the, you know, the winds are at their tails. And in Europe, starting January 3rd of next year, we have MIFID 2. Well, uh, what does that stand for? <laughs> I thought, uh-huh, Eric, what does it stand for? MIFID, caps M-I-F-I-D. I think it uh, has to do something with uh, uh, the browbeating of the financial business. And punishing research analysts, I understand. Yeah, well, after today, I think a lot of them, even more of them than usual deserve it, but that's a story we'll leave aside for somebody else to write. Anyway, the point of the seven is that uh, the fiduciary rule and MIFID are going to shove more and more money into passive strategies, right? Yeah, that, that, that's it. Um, Larry Fink in a recent interview said, it's humbling. Uh, I know what that means. Uh, but you know, um, who was it? We had several people address the question of, uh, of indexation at this conference we had on the 10th of October. I, I believe it was Paul Singer who began Elliott Management I think 40 years ago this year, 1977. He began it with one lonely million dollars and he's got 30 odd billion now, which of course next to next to Bridgewater is like nothing right now. Drowning air. Yeah. But uh, Paul said, uh, Paul Singer said that uh, he is no longer going to uh, refer to, uh, to index management. He's going to refer, he's going to call this unmanaged money. Walter Badgett, my current biographical subject, uh, you know, the second or third, really, officially the third editor of The Economist, who uh, wrote this book called Lombard Street, which is kind of the, uh, the basis for much of the uh, intervention, uh, interventionist policies of, of contemporary central banks. Anyway, Walter Badgett said famously in his book Lombard Street, quote, money won't manage itself. Oh, yes, it will. <laughs> Trillions are self-managed or unmanaged or out there riding the wave and living the life. It sounds like a complaint, doesn't it? And beating college endowments. Yeah, uh, but uh, we think not Rutgers and not, and not Ohio State. All right, proceed, Evan. And uh, here's one of my favorite things. Bloomberg reported this today. You know, it's it's not just hard to pick stocks and, you know, just easier <laughs> to is, buy an ETF. This is good, yeah. Yeah, but management seems almost seem to go out of their way to make you want to buy an ETF. And I'm going to quote directly from Bloomberg. Last quarter, General Electrico reported earnings of 28 cents per share, also 13 cents a share, 19 cents a share, and 15 cents a share, all at the same time. These numbers represent profit that includes or excludes certain items such as pension cost and discontinued operations. Well, the uh, Grants Interest Rate Observer Conference of October 10th, parenthetically, you should have been there. It was great. Close friends. Anyway, at the Grants Conference, I got to uh, bring forward into the public view a piece of information that uh, our confrere, Harrison Waddill, surfaced. Um, this concerns the quality of earnings. And Harrison came up with a relic from the year 2000. It was a piece
Chase reporting on the campaign against pro-former earnings abuses mounted by the then chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, Harvey Pitt, who uh, actually is nobody's idea of a whipcracker, but uh, Harvey Pitt was in the vanguard of the drive against these abuses where managements will twist and, and manipulate earnings as if they wanted the stock price to go up. So Evan and Phil and Eric, would you care to guess? You know, so you can't say this is a rhetorical question. The name of the first company brought to book, not, uh, not actually punished, but censured, admonished, reproved by the Securities and Exchange Commission for abuse of the pro forma earnings technique. Any idea what the ticker might be? The ticker, just to, don't give me the name, just ticker. What did Enron trade under? Uh, E-N-E, but I, I don't think that's it. I think it might be a five-letter No, it's a three-letter ticker. I think it became a five-letter ticker eventually. T-J, wait, D-J-T, yeah, for Donald J. Trump, which is the Trump's hotel and casino. <laughs> they reported like 60 cents a share and it should have been 15, fourfold or so inflation of earnings. They included some non-recurring stuff and they omitted one of the non-recurring thing. It was a great big what's it called? Um, Fake news? Yeah. And um, the story talked to the uh, CFO of this fine institution. He asked, well, what are the consequences of this? The guy said, nothing. We're just, uh, you know, moving forward, moving on. Business as usual. <laughs> hey, are we at the middle of this in, this, uh, this podcast? Yet? So I want to read this ad from Casper uh, Sleep Brand. Makes mattresses. Outrageously comfortable mattresses sold directly to consumers, thereby eliminating the middleman, the agent of inflation and commission-driven excess. These mattresses win awards and they help you sleep or uh, not toss and turn, but sleep. Obsessively engineered are these mattresses. Shockingly low price. Fair price, actually. And here's something. The product design features a marriage between the foam layers for ideal firmness, which I think is an improvement in the morality of ma mattress making. There's a lot of shacking up in mattress making. This is a marriage. Let's make it official. Affordable price, free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada, 100-night trial with free underscore no hassle returns if you're not happy. And with over 20,000 reviews, average of 4.8 stars, average of 4.8 is only out of like four stars? Oh, I think that's out of five, I, I think. Or 12 or something. Anyway, a lot of stars. It's becoming the internet's favorite mattress. And, and some people like it too. So get $50 towards any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com slash grantpub. Casper.com slash grantpub. And using promo code grantpub at checkout. Terms and, yeah, Terms and conditions apply. Nope, they always. All right. Thank you, Casper. Yeah, this is a story you found this morning, and it's probably the thing that disturbed me the most. Oh, wait, wait, wait. This is Grant's interest rate observer. We're not disturbed by these things. We are inspired by them. But proceed. This inspired me the most. Normally, when you when you think of market makers, you think of like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, you know, the big banks that go in there, use their balance sheet and, you know, lean against the tide and supply liquidity. LaBranche is a great one too. Well, apparently, they're kind of giving up that business on uh, on ETFs. And the, the firms that are stepping in their stead are high-frequency traders. That's high, high frequency during bull markets. Very high frequency during bull markets. They, they, they tend to disappear in bear markets, though. Well, in, in fairness, a lot of the eminent names you mentioned have been known to pick up the phone only reluctantly during very steep vertiginous downdrafts. That's the case. That's the fact. Not LaBranche on the floor of the exchange, but the, some of the over-the-counter market makers were slow to pick up the phone during times of crisis. But proceed, Evan. Do the algorithmic traders even have phones? Sorry? Do the algorithmic traders, you know, the, the computers trading I'm with I'm showing them? my age, but just let's not linger on that yeah. one. Go on. 
So the, the article said that the Amsterdam-based IMC, for example, was the lead market maker for 125 ETFs on New York Stock Exchange Arca as of October 4th, up from just, just one 17 months earlier. Other growers include Jane Street Group, Flow Traders, Latour Trading. Citadel Securities is considering getting in the business. Well, it's certainly, uh, you know, Frank Rosens, at, again, at our conference, gave one fabulous talk on uh, the contemporary version of portfolio insurance. We've written about this in grants, like the May 5th issue, maybe we did. But uh, so Frank has been thinking about uh, uh, the structure of the market and all of the money that's invested without regard to uh, valuation of any kind. I think you counted like 21 trillion invested without uh, regard to valuation. So this story doesn't exactly speak to Frank's thesis, but what it does do, as Frank mentioned to me, is, is to raise the question of how much of the stock market is, as it were, rented only during the course of the upswing. Like, you know, the people who own these ETFs are not wedded to the names. They don't really have thought much about IBM. If IBM is in the ETF, they, they know the ticker, right? And the, the ticker goes up. That's what these things do. Uh, but come the change in direction, um, uh, how quickly will the momentum-minded people change their minds? And when they do, how uh, responsive will these, for the time being, high-frequency traders be to uh, orderly markets on the downside? Anyway, it does uh, get the imagination turning. Especially on uh, important anniversaries. Uh, uh, June 16th is Patricia's and my anniversary. What were you thinking about it? I was thinking uh, October 19th. Ah, that's uh, Thursday. Yeah. Uh, 30 years ago, the market had a, a little hiccup. Yes. Then. Well, um, in the issue of grants dated May 5th, uh, 2017, that's the one with the long interview with Frank Rosens, who actually was a, uh, a partner of Goldman Sachs in a, in a most productive one. He, I think, originated the Japanese stock market options business uh, at a nice uh, moment, not so far in advance of the 1989, last day of 1989 high in the Nikkei. But Frank was on the risk arbitrage desk of Goldman Sachs, worked with Bob Rubin, and uh, he tells the story of how they came to seize portfolio insurance as a, as a clear and present danger as a source of the internal market, not just weakness, but a possible catalyst event for some sudden downdraft, which indeed it proved to be, and how they went into the market. They were, they were uh, long only 30% of their normal equity exposure. They had 70% uh, in cash, and they had hedged, I don't know, a half of or a quarter maybe of, of the remainder of their equity exposure with uh, with S&P puts, perhaps. Anyway, they'd had it hedged. And he said, with all, I mean, I, I when I introduced him, I think I intimated that they had done very well in the crash. And he corrected me by saying that uh, having done all this, they still lost the most money of anyone on Goldman Sachs any previous day. Now, I think that I think that in fairness to Frank, I think that record's been eclipsed. Uh, that was some day, only 30 years ago. Boy, time does fly. I remember the, uh, the issue of grants just before the crash. We did not say as much as we should have said in service to our readers that uh, October 19th will be the crash. But here's a little citing from, or historical citing, that in the run-up to the crash, interest rates had been rising, bond prices falling, bond yields, of course, on the upswing. I think intraday, just not so far before the 19th of October, I think the Treasury's touched 10%, long treasuries, 10% yield to maturity, 10. And the stock market was, uh, I don't know, I think Frank recalls it being as a, as a PE basis, uh, like 17 or so or 18, you know, nothing nothing so far out of the world, out of the, out of, out of the um, world's experience. And I think very modestly valued, uh, if you take market cap as a percentage of American GDP. But maybe maybe he was, Frank was talking about uh, uh, Robert Schiller's uh, cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio. In any case, that was not so 
high in 1987. Now is it uh, high-ish, is it? Yeah, it's uh, only been higher twice. Right. And I think the ratio of uh, American stock market capitalization to GDP is also touching or near, certainly knocking on the door of highs. No, I think so. Which, ladies and gentlemen, says nothing about what's going to happen next week, tomorrow, or next year. These are observations. Evan, I think you have point 11. Yeah, th this is actually from the, uh, the September 30th, 2016. Oh, but, uh, may I interrupt? Evan, if I ask nicely, I want to say a word on behalf of eFinancial Careers, which is we're proud to have them and they are, sounds as they do a terrific thing, terrific service. It's the world's leading financial services career website. So discover uh, career changing opportunities across the industry from leading brands to niche firms. So why not take the hard, hard work out of job hunting? I wonder if that means they absorb the no's for you. Do you think so? If you apply to... Uh, a niche firm that say get lost, that, that, that eFinancial Careers will absorb that or help you work with that. It sounds from their ad copy as if they were sympathetic people. So why not take the hard work out of job hunting? Register today to let recruiters find you. You can create a profile, let recruiters easily match you to their open roles, save jobs, and create alerts to stay informed of the latest opportunities. Upload your resume and cover letter to quickly apply to jobs. So check out the site at efinancialcareers.com. That's lowercase e, capital F, financialcareers.com. Yeah, all right. So Evan, what does point 11 say? Yeah, so this is from our backlog, uh, the September 30th, 2016 issue of grants. On August 24th, 2015, trading halts in eight S&P stocks, quote, cascaded into stoppages of 42% of all U.S. equity ETFs. The quoted words belong to Bob Rice, New York-based Tangent Capital Managing Director and author of an article in the June 15th edition of uh, Investment News. On the same day, fully one-fifth of all equity ETFs experienced price movements of 20% or more, even though just 4% of individual stocks did, Rice continued. Case in point, the very popular iShares Select Dividend ETF experienced losses at much greater percentage price swings than any other any of the individual stocks it held. And those are the, the sedate stocks, right? The dividend payers? Yeah, the safe ones. Well, and this was um, August 24th, 2015. Yeah. And I guess this was when some of the uh, the bulge bracket names were still making markets. A few more of them than they do now. But that, that followed just like a, a 3 or 4% depreciation of the renminbi that nobody expected. And all of a sudden, volatility picked up and, and the world looked a little more dangerous. Yeah. Well, volatility is, uh, is one sleepy puppy these days. Evan, we've run out of enumerated items, but uh, is there anything else you can give us by way of uh, wisdom, observation, or... or, or... I've got one little uh, tidbit. Yes, yes um, Phil Grant, please. I've got a, a list of one, which is um, the spread between the 5 and 30-year uh, Treasury bonds uh, has narrowed today by uh, two and a half basis points to under 88 basis points, which is its flattest since the financial crisis. Let's see, it compares to about 140 basis point difference between the 5 and 30-year Treasury bonds uh, following the uh, presidential election last November and above 240 basis points at the end of 2013, which I believe was when the Fed was withdrawing from their uh, QE3 program the uh, and the so-called taper tantrum. Again, uh, going off recollection, I think market participants thought that the end of uh, QE3 was going to lead to, you know, an upsurge in bond yields. And, yeah. Uh, well, you know, this, is, this is where uh, Van Hoisington and Lacey Hunt have been so right for so long. They keep on saying, let the Fed tighten. They, they, as bond bulls, as you know, ladies and gentlemen, they have owned the long bond for about, uh, what, 200 years or something? Yeah. Uh, they've owned it for a long time, haven't sold it. And uh, Van says, uh, and Lacey agrees, of course, that, uh, that it's bullish for them, that is to say bullish for bond prices, if the Fed goes through, uh, follows through, and uh, raises its little tiny funds rate again, 
and or begins to reduce the size of his balance sheet. Their contention is that the world is so encumbered, our particular corner of the world is so encumbered, uh, the Fed has uh, lost control of the uh, inflation spigot, and uh, try as it might, it's going to be unsuccessful in raising long-dated bond yields. And Phil, that, that sighting on the flattening of the curve would certainly seem at least not to invalidate the Hoisington Hunt hypothesis. They have been on a about a, a tw- what, 25-year roll. Yeah, almost as long as the uh, huh. the Black uh, Black Monday. <laughs> Evan, I thank you, Phil. Thank you, Eric. Nice going with those dials, ladies and gentlemen. I thank you for listening to us. And this, this is uh, Jim Grant on behalf of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, and we will talk to you next week. 